This podcast contains explicit language. If you want to know how explicit, keep listening. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of February 20th, 2024. On this week's show, we'll talk about the no-defense farcicality of the NBA All-Star Game and whether anything can be done about it. We'll also discuss whether the company Fanatics is destroying the sports uniform. And writer Abraham Josephine Reisman will join us to explain the allegations against wrestling honcho Vince McMahon and why they matter. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of the book, The Queen, and I refused to play defense before it was cool not to play defense. Also in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. And he's so on trend that sometimes he lets the ball go through his legs on purpose in old man softball. False. <laughs> but I only played defense when I played pickup basketball because I really didn't have much of a shot and I couldn't drive the lane well. So I was scrappy. I would hope that you were. Grand Theft, Fatsaraldo. And with us, as always, from Palo Alto, three-time slow burn host, Joel Anderson. And I would never presume about you, Joel. Did you ever play defense? Oh, no, I was really good at defense. <laughs> I mean, the thing you learn in Little League and in youth basketball is that most people can't dribble. So if you swarm them, I, I would probably score 10 points a game just off stealing the ball from the other guard when I was little. I was a really good basketball player. Did you also steal candy from, from children? Nah, I mean, I wasn't a bully, Josh. Come on. It was only in between the white lines. Black no. lines, I guess, because it's court, yeah. not the white lines on the basketball courts. No harm, no foul? You know, like, I feel like that's. I found out Kobe did that. So I kind of had like what people might call the Kobe system <laughs> from like ages 8 to 12. You know, you just, you know, if you're going to come out there with that loose handle, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, kids didn't really know how to dribble as well back then either, in all fairness. So it's, they're easy pickings. All right, this week and every week, we want to thank our Slate Plus members for making this podcast possible. And this week, as we do every week, we have a bonus segment for you guys. We're going to talk about uh, All-Star Weekend uh, coming up. And in the bonus segment, we're going to focus on the Steph Curry versus Sabrina Ionescu uh, three-point shootout. Perhaps the only thing that redeemed All-Star Weekend. If you want to hear us talk about that and you want to hear bonus segments on other Slate shows too, and if you want to get ad-free listening and support us, you need to be a Slate Plus member. To sign up, go to slate.com slash hangupplus. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. The night before the NBA All-Star Game, League Commissioner Adam Silver at least pretended to be confident the game's participants would put on a strong effort for the duration of the contest. Silver said, I think we're going to see a good game. A day later, standing with the Eastern Conference All-Stars after the highest-scoring All-Star game in league history, Silver seemed to realize the folly of his prediction. Here's a clip from the televised post-game presentation. To the Eastern Conference All-Stars, you scored the most points. Well, congratulations. Giannis, to your team, this trophy is yours. Uh, As you can tell, the fans in Indianapolis were similarly appreciative of getting to witness such a historic occasion. The East won 211 to 186 on Sunday, setting the points record in a mostly non-competitive game. Mostly? That wrapped up... Well, you know, I mean, that was... (laughs) They they tossed it around a little bit early in the game, right? Um, But that game wrapped up another annual round of existential questions about the NBA and All-Star Weekend itself. So, Josh, let's start with you. How much did you hate the game, and why should the NBA never, ever stage another one? Not to put words in his mouth, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm done, Stefan. You want to go ahead? I, I think worse than hate is apathy. And I did not tune in, hadn't ever had any intention of tuning in. I, I barely even sought out the highlights. I'm not here to brag about my lack of preparation for this podcast for you, uh, the people that we uh, treasure and love. But I, I think even you who hold us to incredibly high standards would not expect for us to watch the NBA All-Star game. I mean, seriously. But there, there is all this consternation about you know what can be done. The NBA has uh, financial reasons. Um, they're about to negotiate this new television deal. And for all of its, uh, the apathy around it in the culture and on the court, 
It's still in, highly rated. It was, I think, last year higher rated than any regular season game. It's sort of similar, Joel, to college bowl games. We're like, why do these exist? Nobody cares about them because people watch them on TV. They get really good ratings. And so I think the NBA wants this to succeed. It has the history, Stefan, from when we were growing up, not just in basketball, but I, I think particularly in baseball, that the All-Star game is this kind of glorious occasion that we all look forward to and the players seem to care about as well. But it just doesn't seem like today, in this moment, in the culture of the sport and in our culture at large, that these games have the same kind of purchase and impact and importance. And so I kind of lean towards the side of folks who say that the game shouldn't exist. And I feel like the NBA All-Star Game this year was if kind of sim- very different in kind of conception and form, but it just feels like it was replaced by the in-season tournament, which was competitive, which was slapped in the middle of the regular season, which had a trophy and fun courts. And some people complained about it, but I think mostly people, um, you know, were way more interested in it and, and it led to a lot more conversations than the All-Star Game. And so maybe... Can we just agree that the birth of that can, you know, cancel out the death of of this kind of old and crumbling institution? But this institution's not going to die because for the reasons that you just articulated, Josh, people watch it. it. This weekend is valuable to the NBA. They are negotiating a new television contract. They're going to try to find a way to make this something that the networks want to show. What surprises me about the reaction to this game is the fake surprise. They didn't play defense. They walked around for 48 minutes and jacked up threes. What did you expect them to do? This is a completely natural and predictable evolution in this game. It started when the All-Star became the All-Star Weekend And the game itself became the nightcap of this whirlwind of marketing shit and parties and on-court gimmicks. Everyone who's sitting on those benches are hungover, if not still drunk, metaphorically, (laughs) if not literally. And they just want to get on a plane and get the fuck home. We'll talk about sort of back in the day when the players tried in the All-Star game. But come on. You know, Joel, we can't expect them to try anymore. Chris Thompson wrote in Defector, players are not morons. Uh, League salary rules undermine their value. Uh, They have a chance to win an NBA championship. Nobody wants to get hurt in this dumbass exhibition game. And Adam Silver threw the players under the bus I mean, what incentive has the league given to the players to care about this? They've done nothing but tell the world that this weekend is just for fun. Why would we expect the players to treat the game as anything different? No, I, th- I think that's right. Like, the players, in, you know, judging from a lot of the NBA reporters that are there and, and cover the league, and some of the players, like Anthony Edwards, said it outright themselves. Yeah. I'm here to have fun. Like, this is a break from the grind of the season. And we're here to do, you know, pitch what we need to pitch, uh, make the appearances we need to make. And if we do anything else, you should sort of be grateful for it. And so I think that there's this real disconnect between the players and the fans in that as fans, we're asking the players to show up and play hard every time we see them. Random Wednesday night games, the end-season tournament, maybe the all-star game, and then again— when all that ultimately matters to your legacy is what happens, you know, three to five months later, right? So we're asking them, and then this year, for instance, some of those guys are going to play for the Olympic national team, and we're going to ask them to play really hard. That's a lot of, like, effort of high-level basketball. That's year-round basketball, and we know that that's not great for anybody's body, but certainly people that have logged as many miles in minutes as NBA All-Star will by the time they get to that point. So there's that disconnect. But I do think this generation of NBA players does need to be careful because they sort of operate, they're cashing in on the equity that generations of NBA players mm-hmm. built before them. And it was really hard. It's a It was a real hard fight. Like there is a... <laughs> Because of America's racial attitudes and because of the composition of the league, the NBA has always had to fight harder for the affection and the attention of fans. And they've got it. Like, it is a 
a sport that has gone all around the globe and people are big NBA fans, but there has been a little bit of erosion and because of changing viewership habits and everything else that you can see that like there's a little bit of less interest in your average NBA game, right? And if they continue to do this sort of stuff and showcase moments, I do think that there ultimately might be a price to pay. It could hurt them on the back end, Josh. And so I do take, you know, that sort of critique seriously that they, you know, when they have the opportunity, when the world is paying attention to them, the NFL not playing right now, no Major League Baseball, you've got the attention all to yourselves. And in that moment, nobody feels satisfied about it. I don't think that can be a good thing for the league. Yeah, I think that that's totally fair. And Tom Ziller had a really good post in his newsletter about how Steph Curry's rise is sort of a demarcation point for the All-Star game. That before Steph played in the All-Star game, his first appearance, there was an average of 51 three-pointers in the All-Star game each year in the 11 years preceding. In the 11 years since, there have been 131 three-pointers per All-Star game. So it's like the kind of NBA, how the NBA has shifted, but just completely, um, you know, an, an exaggerated cartoonish version. And so three-pointers mean less opportunities to contest, less defense. There were only three fouls called in uh, Sunday's All-Star game. And so these are just basically markers of what we saw and what we knew. No defense played. Everybody, you know, just jacking up long shots and not trying to actually compete or contest. And I think the Anthony Edwards thing is an interesting point or an interesting person to focus on because I don't know when everyone decided that we're calling this guy Ant-Man, but I can't tell you how many times I heard someone say that (laughs) Ant-Man is the future of of the league. You know, his fellow players saying that, oh, he's going to be the one to take it from LeBron, Steph, and KD. And to your point, Joel, this is a guy who, fair or unfair, was the star player on a world championships team that flamed out in the world championships. He's a guy who plays in Minnesota, which has had a good regular season, but as yet has had no playoff success and is in a small market. He's a guy who text messages came out where he suggested Mm -hmm. that a a woman get an abortion, which he apologized for. Um, He's somebody who's got a big smile and a nice personality and is good at scoring. It seems like wishful thinking or something like what has this guy done to suggest that for himself and for the world that he is like the next star that we should be pinning our our hopes on and in this game it's less to like critique him for not trying i guess it's more to say this is an indication that for a player like anthony edwards the all-star game is so irrelevant that he doesn't i mean this is like a savvy generally, I I think, person, like somebody who I think cares about stardom and who sees himself as as somebody who can take that mantle. He just doesn't recognize this as any moment for him. Um, He doesn't, he's a great dunker. He doesn't want to participate in the slam, he hasn't participated in the slam dunk contest. I'm sure the NBA would have him. And so what are the opportunities for a player like this at a moment when maybe regular season, even regular season ratings are declining. It's just like the playoffs are or absolutely nothing. It's not like, you know, Dominique using the slam dunk contest to become an icon. Um, or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Jordan was obviously incredibly famous and, and popular before he had any kind of playoff success. I mean, obviously, that's a bar that we shouldn't compare anyone to. But it, um, I, I don't know, you know, what do you think of any of that, Stefan? I mean, isn't isn't the problem that the way sports have been refracted and distilled in culture makes it much harder for those kinds of signature moments to be possible? I mean, what do you do with the All-Star game? What worked at All-Star Weekend? I loved watching the the three-point shooting contest. That was fun, and everybody was trying. And we'll talk about the Sabrina 
uh, the Sabrina Ionescu versus Steph Curry shootout because that was really entertaining. That was good theater. I mean, so it's up to the league to sort of reimagine the ways to give Aunt Edwards or whoever a platform to demonstrate that they are worthy of being talked about as some sort of trans- transcendent athlete who can lift an entire sport into the future. It ain't this full 48-minute game, obviously, where, I mean, those guys, I did watch the last, I don't know, 10 minutes, um, and there's walking up the court. It was it was kind of funny, right? I mean... Did you enjoy how Luca and, and Joker were just passing it back and forth to each other as they walked up the court, or Luca yeah. front-rimming like an attempted off-the-backboard dunk? Or Lillard just taking three dribbles and deciding to jack one from 50 feet. Actually, he did it twice from half court and made two. So it's not this format. So what kind of a format can you come up with that will actually incentivize the players to try to do something on a basketball court? I don't know. Is or is it, it like the Pro Bowl Joel? where they I mean, just give up? Or like the Pro Bowl where they give up and play flag football? Yeah. I mean, I just, I wonder also, um, I know that there's been, you know, clips circulating of defense being played, you know, late in games from the 90s, all-star games from the 90s. 2001, Joel. The, it, the final uh, score was like a regular NBA game. It was like 111 to 110, and dudes were like hacking and blocking and playing real it, D. It, do you know what fans said about the NBA in 2001? Yeah. They complained about how ugly the game was and how defensive, you know, how defensive-minded it was. And, you know, oh, man, nobody wants to tune in and watch regular season games that end 71 to 67 and things like that. And they were so, all just shooting mid-range jumpers. I mean, that's the big difference here is that sure. you're not going to put your body under mm-hmm. stress if you just go and just shoot a bunch of threes. And is there a misapprehension about like fan, how much fans like watching guys shoot three-pointers? Is that like a fundamental issue here? I was going to wonder, like, do you think that the players don't understand that like Players fall in love with basketball because of scoring, right? And whenever they talk about the players they most admire, they talk about Kobe, Allen Iverson, Carmelo, Anthony, like guys that can get buckets. And I just think I wonder if they're just, they've fallen so in love with the idea that people love watching us score. Like this is what people tune in to watch. And they got, it kind of gets lost. And so they're just like, oh, well, they want to see us dunk and run up and down the floor and contest it and do this other sort of stuff, but not really thinking about what it looks like aesthetically when there's actually no friction out there, right? Would players play harder if everybody on the winning team got a million dollars, number one? And number two... A billion dollars. <laughs> you know what's cool? A billion dollars for making a half-court uh, half court shot. <laughs> and, you know, we've had this conversation interminably about the NCAA that, like, oh, like, people get people won't watch anymore if the players are getting paid. It's total bullshit, this, like, kind of amateurism stuff. But, like... If you need to like pay people a million dollars to like compete an all-star game, should this stupid all-star game exist? I mean, I think everyone is kind of like you said, Joel, behaving rationally here. Yeah. But I don't know. It, yeah, and I, I would also just say this too, like because right, I don't know if there needs to be a future for the all-star game. Again, I think there's a lot of revisionist history. We we don't remember how we remember a few snippets of all-star games from the past. Like and I've looked at some of the scores from, you know, the eighties and nineties, and not all of those games were, you know, nip and tuck no. down to the wire, you know, defensive minded affairs. Like some of them were, you know, as lopsided as anything. And I remember sometimes watching as a kid and that game not turning out and being sort of disappointed. But I would just say too Fans and media, we should think about our rhetoric. I mean, we're sitting here complaining about this showcase event and players, I mean, they hear this stuff and they internalize it. And I think about Jalen Brown, for instance, watching the dunk contest on Saturday, all-star who decided to go ahead and compete. He became a meme over the weekend. He didn't have a great, you know, dunk performance and people started making fun of him. And I'm just That's what people say about the idea of doing a one-on-one contest, that players are too afraid to get memed, that they won't. Yeah. Yeah, we don't we we don't reward them for competitiveness under these circumstances. We only care about what happens in the postseason. And so they're responding accordingly, I think. But isn't there also a kind of issue here where with load management, players not playing as much, the NBA is trying to force them to. And then that led to the whole like conversation around Joel Embiid, if that kind of contributed to his injury. I, I think that's maybe what's going on with 
Adam Silver, like he's trying to protect the product or make the product as valuable as possible. It's like, all right, you're not taking the regular season seriously. You're not taking the all-star game seriously. Like, you know, make the make the regular season shorter. But I just feel like for the all-star game, it's not like back, you know, in the glory days of baseball when that was the only game on television or one of the few games that was on television. Like, I want to watch, I want to see what, literally see what Dan Musial looks like. I mean, we're, we're <laughs> like in the exact opposite of that era. So I just do feel like the in-season tournament is the solution here, that the weekend can be the dunk contest and the three-point contest. And all of the energy should go towards getting the best players to dunk by giving them a shit ton of money. And I think there wouldn't, like a, a kind of naked opportunism around a fucking dunk contest, I don't think anybody would have a problem with. Um, but the game itself, it just seems like, you know, the, the time has passed and rather than try to shame players into it, rather than try to bribe them into it, rather than come up with like ridiculous formats to try to save it, just kill it and lean into the stuff that people actually like and that the players seem to care about and that you, you could uh, incentivize in a, in a way that makes sense. All right, and we'll pick the rest of this back up in the Slate Plus bonus segment where we'll talk about Steph versus Sabrina. But up next, did Fanatics ruin athletic jerseys? Baseball spring training began last week. Rogers Hornsby stopped looking out his window. Shohei Otani took his first batting practice swings as a Los Angeles Dodger. And players wondered why their pants didn't fit and the names on the backs of their jerseys were so small. Yes, a league with franchises worth a total of about $70 billion contracted with one company valued at $155 billion, Nike, and another valued at $31 billion, Fanatics, to produce new uniforms that have players complaining not only about pants sizing and point sizing, but also color, design, and feel. Joel, the thing I love most about this story is hearing players talk about stitching, tailoring, and plackets, but it also has so much more the sanctity of the sports uniform, the easy desecration of that sanctity, and these corporate giants squirming over how they made their employees' pajamas. I think my more uh broad comment here is that so when I was a kid, I came to believe that everything was rigorously tested and reviewed before being rolled out to the public. <laughs> so everything that might impact people of consequence, like bridge like from bridges to brake systems, clothing, food, whatever. I'm just imagining was young, young Joel coming yeah, to that, ha- reading consumer that. reports. <laughs> As a kid, if you show up to a carnival, you think, oh, they wouldn't allow this ride to be here that's unsafe because clearly there are safeguards in place to protect us from harming ourselves or from people getting hurt Joel, on man, something you should like work that. for OSHA. Yeah, well, I mean, again, uh, you know, I, I, I was thinking about that as a kid. I'm like, hey, is this safe? Uh, I was very neurotic. But as you get older, you learn that that's a folly in a number of ways. So I actually thought of this. Remember when the NBA rolled out a new synthetic ball in 2006 to mm-hmm. replace the old mm-hmm. leather basketball? And the, the theory was that the new ball would be cheaper, easier to produce, and let, like, you know, sub-pro basketball leagues have been using some version of synthetic balls for years. And you're thinking, they're going to make a change this fundamental to the game. Clearly, they've looped at the players that everybody is going to be okay with this. And, oh, that's not actually what happened. They, the players got a chance to play with the ball for a month. And then David Stern, of all people, had to relent, and they changed and went back to the old ball. So it's not really a surprise to me that something as fundamental as the uniform would be messed with in this way, that you know that they would have tried to figure out a way to squeeze out a little bit more money and save a little bit more in terms of production costs you know, in the entire process here. But I guess it also is kind of shocking, Josh, to hear baseball players be like, man, I've got some cheap shit on right now. It, it, oh, it feels cheap. <laughs> and it doesn't look good either. Um, and you would think, oh, professional sports, they have enough money that, you know, they're from first class, top of the line, everything. But clearly that's just not the way that it works. 
isn't this uh, your afterball from a couple of months ago, Stefan, about in shitification? Yeah. That they get you locked. Mm-hmm. They get you locked in. You got to wear this <laughs> uniform. What else are you going to do? And then they just make it worse. Uh, Stephen Nesbitt in the Athletic had some good quotes from players. The Angels' Taylor Ward said, "It feels kind of papery." <laughs> talking about his uniform it looks like a replica it doesn't look like a 450 dollars jersey and then my favorite carlos estevez uh angels reliever when i wear my pants i feel like i'm wearing someone else's pants um <laughs> so stefan maybe you can take a step back for us here because the way we build the segment the way i talked about at the top of the show was fanatics are they ruining things but fanatics isn't necessarily at fault for what we're talking about here right yeah. Um, in 2019, Nike became Major League Baseball's official uniform provider, um, 10-year deal, north of a billion dollars. And then Nike brought in Fanatics, which had bought uh, baseball's old uniform supplier, Majestic, in 2017 so fanatics but the designs are nike they're nike designs like when people are complaining about the small type on the names and all that stuff that's like nike sends the plan or whatever to fanatics and fanatics is just making it in the factory yeah i mean look there's plenty that we can diss fanatics for their treatment of customers, the products that they make, the quality of them, the cost. But there's also just the division between what the players wear and what the fans buy. They're not the same product. Correct. Though fans have always had the opportunity to spend like $400 to buy what the players wear. Um, but in this case, it does seem, and Paul Lucas of UniWatch, who is the most obsessive chronicler of what professional athletes wear, wrote in a post the other day about how retail and design are really separate issues here. And this is a Nike responsibility in terms of making the decisions about how to alter the uniforms, how to alter the belt loops, how to change the piping, what material to use. Um, That's all a Nike thing. Fanatics in this case is really like the subcontractor, uh, Lucas writes. And nobody here, Nike hasn't responded to say what's going on. Nobody's given a good response, though it does seem like after all of those player complaints, and it was more than just a couple players, it was a lot of players, that the companies are going to revisit, for instance, allowing the players to have their measurements taken for their pants as opposed to getting like off the rack shit that you would buy. They had to complain about that though, right? Like they were like, we're not doing that. We're not doing any tailoring. And then they're like, ah, yeah, actually we're probably going to need to do that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Aren't you all a little surprised that maybe I'm naive that the leagues would take this much of a hands-off approach, even though Nike has, you know, um, been a league partner for these leagues for, you know, several decades now going on. And if you're of a, of a certain generation, like I am, you kind of come to associate Nike with quality. And I don't, you know, they've done a really good job of beating that into our heads over the years. But I'm, actually, I'm still sort of surprised that the leagues sort of took, it seems to me, a hands-off approach to this and said, I'm sure Nike and Fanatics have got it fine. You know, and then the the uniforms show up and then everybody's like, oh, I don't know what the hell happened. But I just I don't know. Not that I would think that the MLB would have an in-house manufacturing a design team, but it just doesn't seem like there were any checks in place to make sure that this product was on the level. I'm with you, Joel. I mean, Dansby Swanson, who's a Nike athlete, the Cubs shortstop um, was like the blue on the Cubs uniforms is not cubby blue. He's trying to be politic about it, but he's like, how can we just recapture that? Um, so I I agree. It just seems, it, it all seems very strange, the lack of quality control, the lack of, it, it seems conversation between the key stakeholders here, as we say, in business. But also, I do think even though, you know, maybe the Nike thing and the Fanatics thing are, you know, separate uh, in a lot of ways, I do feel like there is a common kind of sense and and an accurate belief that sports uniforms are declining in quality, that Fanatics has become a monopoly. You know, they bought, you know, Mm -hmm. Topps trading cards. It's not just in uniforms, but it's kind of increasing its valuation, billions Mm -hmm. upon billions upon billions. And consumers don't seem to be reaping the rewards of um, Fanatics 
kind of taking over this entire retail sector. I mean, Drew McGarry of Defector, and he he also writes um, a column for the San Francisco paper, has been on a kind of warpath about this, about the terrible customer service, about how the products seem actually worse than, you know, Chinese replicas. Uh, and so I think the conflation here, Stefan, is in a lot of ways actually fair. And whether or not it's fair, I think fanatics, there's this tension here. They control everything. So maybe the bad reviews and the bad reputation doesn't matter. But um, they are developing this reputation as a bad company in a lot of ways. Yeah. And a company that doesn't care. I mean, Drew wrote a, a, a follow-up piece to his original screed against Fanatics after he got some terrible Minnesota Vikings merch saying that Fanatics, a majority owner, sent some dude in a you know in an SUV to his house with a box to try to sort of bribe him into believing that what's the in the box, okay. Stefan? What's in the box? What's in the box? More jerseys. <laughs> it's Michael Rubin as the as the majority owner. Yes. Patrick Redford in of also of Defector compiled the list of fanatic fuck ups, fanatics fuck ups from Twitter back in December. These were great, man. A Titan sweatshirt with a random non-team logo, a Michigan hoodie that said Illinois on the sleeves, an upside down <laughs> Colorado Avalanche logo. There are a couple of Michigan fans I feel like we should buy that for. Can we get <laughs> Fanatics, can we get the Michigan thing with Illinois on it? Thank you. <laughs> Could be a new market. Uh, misspelled yeah. player names on a Flyers jersey, an A.J. Brown jersey with a blank front and a small number on the left of the back, a customized Eagles t-shirt with a kid's name printed smaller than a fingernail, a Chiefs jersey that said Broncos on it, <laughs> reverse numbers on a Raheem Mostert jersey, a Rangers logo on a Maple Leafs long sleeve. I'm sure there are many, many more. So right before we went on air, I was showing the guys this jersey I got from my cousin. He lives in North Texas, and uh, he came across a pile of autographed Earl Campbell jerseys at a grocery store, and he asked me if I wanted it and sent it to me, and I got it in the mail this weekend. So if I go to a grocery store in Texas, I'm like, the Earl Campbell jerseys? Oh, aisle seven. <laughs> aisle seven. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was a whole display. I, actually, this is a big thing because another friend of mine got one of these recently. And I guess maybe Earl's, you know, bringing up a little money here. But as I was looking at it, I was like, well, first of all, it said it was made in the Philippines, but there's no like NFL insignia on it. Like, you know what I mean? There's no- Fanatics does nothing make all of its product in Pennsylvania. Yeah, so it's possible this is just another off-brand jersey, but I think this is sort of a bigger problem with like American capitalism and that quality is not the end game here. It's just with mass production, people just sort of generally come to accept lower quality, which is that when I was in college or whatever, people got these jerseys and they were they they cost a lot of money, man, and it was a symptom of like st- it, it it like meant something to have a jersey. Like it was a a style piece. It was, you know, like if you wore it out. Well, those like, those jerseys like, are like a crucial part of the Rich Paul LeBron James origin story, right? That Rich yeah, Paul man. was like selling jerseys out of his yeah. out of his car. There was a time when it was like a big deal to find like the most obscure jerseys you could. Like I had a Dwight Gooden jersey and I had a Charlie Ward Florida State jersey. Like you know when I was right out of school and it was like yo that was a big piece of you know connecting people. Whatever. Would you collect now, them or would you actually wear them? I just, I would wear them occasionally. I didn't wear them out that much. That wasn't really my bag. That wasn't my style, but I liked having them, right? And, and just kind of like I like I like having this Earl Campbell jersey. I don't ever, I don't think I plan on wearing it out in public, but you, you know, you never know. But um, I just think that like people have just sort of gotten used to lower quality when it comes to these jerseys. This one cost me $34 and Fanatics was perfectly situated to take advantage of this, right? That people are just like, all right, jerseys are cheaper, a little cheaper now. You can see, you know, 30 to 40% of fans at any game wearing a bunch of jerseys. And that wasn't the thing you used to see 20 years ago. And so, you know, if it wasn't the Fanatics, maybe it would have been somebody else, right? Well, and, and this is a, tr isn't this a trickle up problem, Josh? You know, customers get screwed all the time in whatever business. Quality declines. It's hard to complain. Fanatics is going to mm -hmm. do their best to minimize costs in production and deliver a product that 
the customer is not really going to be able to do much about. But when it reaches the athlete, and Drew McGarry made this point in one of his columns, um, athletes become the key to this. If they're going to start giving athletes shitty merch too, then something's got to change. Um, and then the issue becomes a league issue because the leagues are complicit in hiring fanatics, not just to peddle shittier merchandise to the public, but to also make the product for the players. The players have a giant soapbox on which to stand and bitch and get change made. The public doesn't necessarily have that. And as Drew pointed out in one of, in one of his pieces, Fanatics doesn't even allow reviews on its website. Um, so will this be enough for the leagues to actually do something about it? Um, and could that have some effect on the general product that's pawned off on consumers? Probably not. You know, we've already seen Nike sort of trot out a press release with some of its baseball players saying, oh, we love the new fit. They're all great. You know, and we also sort of gave Fanatics a little bit of pass in the production, Josh, but it is possible that whatever materials they use, the coloring that they used, that they made errors in the production process too. We just don't know because there hasn't been that much out there about it yet. It would shock me if if Fanatics and Nike didn't figure out a way to make this go away as an as an issue vis-a-vis -vis the players vis -vis like the players I, I think the players will probably not be what do you what do you want to say john oh no Jess, i'm surprised i thought you were going to say i wouldn't be surprised if they figure out a way to make their product better you said no i think they're going to make a way they're going to figure out a way to make this go away the thing that i thought about you know joel with uniforms is this episode that we did for one year, 1955, about the Cannon Street All-Stars, this all-black Little League team in South Carolina, and one of the sequences in that episode that will stick with me for a really long time is those guys who are now around 80 years old talking about how they got their Little League uniform. And they remember the colors, they remember the name on it, they remember mm -hmm. how it felt, they remember that it was like hot as hell, like they're not saying it was... Um, you know, everything about it was perfect, but it was like, it was like, Sunday, you know, a thing that you would wear to church on Sunday. Like, that's how valuable it was and important it was, and that they would get a dry clean so they would look good. There is this cultural kind of feeling about uniforms and sports uniforms and what it means to wear them, what it means to see your heroes wearing them. We talk about the all-star game is shit now and nobody cares about that. People still care about uniforms. You still I still feel yep. when I see the mm -hmm. LSU football uniforms and the Saints uniforms, mm -hmm. I still feel a certain way about that. And even if they have ads on them, like they can ruin them, they can fuck with them. They can I don't think that feeling that we have that those of us who care about sports have about uniforms is going to go away. That's what fanatics is counting on. And so in in some ways we're kind of all captive to these feelings that we have as as children and I don't you know, I've only had one jersey in my life, an Edgardo Alfonso Mets jersey that was given to me by a friend of the family. I don't know where it is. I'm not like a jersey collector, but I totally understand why mm -hmm. so many people are and why this is such a huge market. It's inextricably linked to my identity, the feeling I had when I was a kid wearing something. And I'm sure, Joel, you feel this too. I mean, this is on my shelf, guys. I'm holding up a picture of my Little League team when I was in like oh. sixth or seventh grade. Um, the Jets, man, we had some, we had some sweet, I think they might've even been flannel uniforms. I would think I was there at the dawn of the polyester. That was my last year of little league. We had, we had the polyester unis showed up. Yeah. And you know, Stefan, when I saw you, I just saw you walk and get the picture and the delight that, that filled your face as you're like looking at it and brought it. And yeah, like to Josh's point, those are the things you really remember. I, I wish that I had my high school and college jerseys. It, we can't, I came from a time where you have to give your jersey back at the end of the year because they needed to be used again the next year. So if I would do anything to have um, a replica or or even that old jersey. Anybody of our, any of our listeners who are in a grocery store in Texas and see a pile of Joel Anderson jerseys? There is a TCU 34 jersey with Anderson on it for a couple of the games I suited up for. So if you see it out there anywhere in the <laughs> wild, uh, give me a holler. One of my biggest regrets, Joel, was not stealing my jersey senior year of a high school from the varsity yep. soccer team. Should have. I learned. It. I learned at college that that's what guys did. They stole their helmets and stuff, and I just wish I'd had the the G in me to do that. Uh, too bad. Should have been a thief. Up next, we'll talk to Abraham Josephine Reisman about the cases building against 
WWE impresario Vince McMahon. Before we start this segment, a warning that our conversation about Vince McMahon includes graphic descriptions of sexual assault. If you want to skip ahead to Afterballs, you can move forward about 18 minutes. Late last month, Janelle Grant filed a lawsuit accusing her former boss, wrestling impresario Vince McMahon, of sexually assaulting her and trafficking her to other men who worked at McMahon's World Wrestling Entertainment. Even as he denied the allegations, the 78-year-old McMahon resigned as the executive chairman of TKO Group Holdings, the company that controls both WWE and the Ultimate Fighting Championship, UFC. And McMahon could be in even more trouble, as the Wall Street Journal reported earlier this month that federal prosecutors have been in contact with more women who've accused him of sexual assault. Joining us now is Abraham Josephine Reisman. She's the author of Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America, and has written a couple of great pieces about McMahon for Slate in the last few weeks. Josie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Let's start with Janelle Grant's lawsuit. The allegations are incredibly heinous. I'm curious what stood out to you when you read it. Yeah. Let me put it this way. When I first encountered this lawsuit from Janelle Grant, I was shocked but not surprised. I was shocked by the details, and yet having already written a biography of Vince and having looked at things that are not even in that biography, I saw it as these allegations fit into a constellation of other allegations that have been made against Vince and against the company over his tenure Vince has in the past been accused of sexual assault on a number of occasions, most notably his uh, first female referee at the World Wrestling Federation, Rita Chatterton, came out in 1992 and said that Vince had raped her a few years prior. That's all background, but Janelle Grant's allegations are, yes, basically that she was someone who was living in Vince McMahon's building, needed work after the death of her parents, and... Her building's resident manager set her up, allegedly, with Vince to get a job. And from there on out, it allegedly spiraled out of control. She was allegedly coerced into sex with Vince in order to get a job. And then once she had the job, which was sort of a paper-only job, she was really there, allegedly, to be used for sex. And there are accusations of Vince raping her in the offices. And sometimes there were other people involved. There were accusations of him having explicit photos and videos of Ms. Grant and then sending them to other people. And even to, there's even allegations that she herself, her body was being farmed out and promised as a reward to people that Vince was dealing with. So, these are far-reaching implications if even a fraction of these allegations are true. And of course, there's a specific allegation that has gotten a lot of press that I hesitate to describe in detail, but it involves an allegation that Vince, during one of these sessions in which Ms. Grant had been coerced into sex, that Vince defecated on her. So this has been something that is both precedented and also in some ways more over the top than people are used to. And I think there's also the implications of who else knew about what was going on, if even a fraction of these things are true. So, Josie, if you were paying attention to the WWE, or maybe say you just kind of lost track of it over the last couple of years, people probably would be surprised to know that, oh, Vince McMahon, back involved with the WWE again. I thought he'd either retire right, or... Right, stepped down. Yeah, so just for the context here for the listeners, he retired as chairman and CEO of WWE back in 2022. Yeah. And that was in the wake of reports he'd paid millions of dollars to suppress those previous allegations mm. of misconduct. So 
how in the hell is he back here again now? What? How did? I thought this was over. <laughs> right. Well, you know, when he stepped back in 2022, I got offers to write columns about the end of the Vince McMahon era. And I, I just said, look, I'm not going to do it unless you write me. Let me write that it's not the end of the Vince McMahon era, because the fact was he remained the financial overlord of the company. It was a publicly traded company, WWE. And he had the largest individual stockholding and he controlled like 80% of the stockholder votes. So although he had resigned, quote unquote, he still could come back at any moment he wanted. And sure enough, around the end of 2022 into 2023, he wrestled his way back to the boardroom purged some enemies. His daughter, Stephanie, who had been the interim co-CEO, resigned under mysterious, slightly shady circumstances that have not been totally clarified yet. And Vince was back in power. He ended up orchestrating a sale of the company to Ari Emanuel's Endeavor, the holding company Endeavor, which also held UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship. And that was a fateful move. Vince made a lot of money on it and was able to demonstrate that he's enough of a big deal in the media and corporate world that he can do business with Ari Emanuel. But it was fateful because he had a boss all of a sudden, which was something Vince had not had in a very long time. Not since his father had sold him the company, which was a sale that finished in 1983. Yeah, and that's the point I wanted to get to. I mean, this is different from McMahon quietly in Connecticut controlling everything uh, right. within this multi-billion dollar company. Now there are people who may not give a shit about the fate of 78-year-old Vince McMahon because this is a $9 billion business that's been taken over by a Hollywood conglomerate. Exactly. So what happens here? I mean, what are there? it feels like there are two tracks. One is the Janelle Grant lawsuit and whatever further allegations start to come out from other women or other people that were abused during the time that McMahon was running WWF and then WWE. And then the second track is the sort of Harvey Weinstein, Me Too, pursuit of McMahon personally on a criminal level as well as a civil level. It's really three tracks. And then the third track is what happens to the company? What's the business risk now for WWE under Endeavor? Yeah. Well, I'll start with the last one, freshest in my mind. The The risk is basically, especially uh, among other things, this federal probe. Reportedly, the federal government has been investigating Vince. They seized his phone last year. And if the reports are true that the new allegations and similar allegations are being incorporate, incorporated into the probe, then what you're really going to look at is not just Vince being targeted as an individual, but very much a larger set of questions about who knew what and when, and who was quiet, and who spoke up and was silenced. You know, if you look at the Janelle Grant allegations, there are all these other players who are not named by name, but are identified and could come up if this proceeds. And it's very clear in saying there was this culture of silence at WWE. And I think the trouble is, if the probe continues and we can and the lawsuits continue and the news cycle continues, you know, TKO is a publicly traded company. They they have to deal with stockholders, too. And they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place, because on the one hand, there's the fact that, like, they may want to distance themselves from Vince. But there's also the fact that he's still a minority shareholder of some size. And if he sold off all his stock, that'd be a problem. And also. More importantly, what is WWE if you run away from the Vince McMahon brand? I mean, what are you going to just purge the tape library of decades, you know, thousands of hours worth of Vince McMahon footage that was essential to understanding what was going on in the wrestling? They're really stuck. And it's astounding to me because on a lot of this stuff was suspected, not the Janelle Grant allegations, but a lot of things were known or suspected as of when the sale happened, as of when Ari Emanuel bought it. Right. 
And you just have to wonder what was the logic there? My, the best guess I have, the best guess I have is I think Ari Emanuel, you know, people keep saying he knew what he was getting into. Why? And I would say, I'm not sure he totally knew what he was getting into because wrestling, pro wrestling, the theatrical art of pro wrestling is its own weird little ecosystem with its own weird rules and its own corruption that goes deeper than most media and athletic organizations corruption goes. So I think maybe he thought he had a standard issue. Oh, well, we have some accusations of sexual harassment problem. As opposed to a, oh, we have a wrestling dictator who's never had to answer to anyone in 40 years problem. So I am not one of the millions upon millions of people who grew up watching pro wrestling. And so I've... What? I've, yeah. No, yeah. It's, uh, I, I really? can't really explain it. So if you had told me, Josie, that wrestling was like declining in popularity, nobody watched anymore, I would be like, all right. I don't. It's just like not my... World, mm. And so then I was surprised, I guess I would say, or I just didn't expect to see the story about Netflix paying $5 billion. To stream Raw. Yeah, the flagship show of WWE is going to be streaming on Netflix Live, which is part of Netflix's big play for live events. And then there are these stories about how like wrestling programming on you know the, the networks that it's broadcast on is like incredibly popular. It's incredibly popular internationally. And yes. so I guess my question is, you know, Vince McMahon is credited as being the this auteur, as like kind of inventing the whole like grammar of wrestling, of inventing the whole style, of inventing the whole kind of language around it. Can professional wrestling ever kind of get rid of the influence? Or even if he's not there, is this going to be the show, the shows, the industry that Vince McMahon created and built in his image. It'll be unclear. It's unclear. I mean, if WWE, which is easily the superpower, if they choose not to change their approach, even though the person who instituted that approach is no longer there, which certainly happens at companies, then we could see Vince's influence extending far beyond that. But I, I really think there are alternative models that are actually at the root of why these wrestling, this wrestling renaissance is happening. What I see happening is across the country, this great nation, you have countless little independent wrestling promotions. And they very often, especially I will say, I'm a trans woman and I love, 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 love the fact that queer and trans independent wrestling is exploding across the country right now. Now, none of it is ever going to be as big as WWE, at least in the immediate future, but it's a totally different model of what wrestling can do. And, you know, we could get into detail, but it has much less of the bitter edge and much less of an emphasis on trying to convince you that it's real. It's much more about using it as theater, as like almost like Commedia dell'arte, but ex but using the grammar of wrestling to do that. So I hope that these newer, freer, weirer approaches that innovate with wrestling, which you can see at the grassroots level, will be allowed to propagate at the highest levels without the iron will of one person sort of dictating everything. So, Josie, it's hard not to read about McMahon and not think about the connections to Donald Trump. Sure. Like, all the way down to the biography, you know, inheriting his father's business, um, expanding it, you know, and obviously Trump is a longtime friend and business associate and has even appeared in a lot of WWE sure has. Um, events and, and, and bouts over the years. So can you talk a little bit about his relationship with Trump? And you mentioned that there's a possibility that if things, you know, go... Uh, the Republicans' way in November that it could be Trump that comes and saves Vince McMahon in the end here, right? Absolutely. Vince McMahon and Donald Trump have been very close for a long time. For one thing, even before they knew each other, little Donnie Trump, when he was growing up in Queens in the 50s and onward past that, was watching McMahon family wrestling. He was watching the, the previous iterations of the company that is now WWE, and he loved it. You can read Michael Cohen's memoir, and he talks over and over again about how much Trump loves wrestling and insists on watching wrestling, and specifically Vince's brand of wrestling, which is what he's become familiar with. He's appeared in shows. He has hosted shows. 
And I really think in addition to them becoming close friends and in addition to Vince's wife, Linda McMahon, becoming a cabinet member under Trump, I think Trump really learned how to work a crowd, a rowdy, interactive crowd from doing his appearances at WrestleMania in 2007 and in the buildup to it. Because I'm not a Trump biographer, but from what I could find from other Trump people, he didn't really have that kind of speaking style because he, when was he talking to rowdy interactive crowds? But suddenly in wrestling, he finds this medium that really works for him, that he's watched a million times and that he can adapt himself to. And there's also just the broader approach to blending and exploding the distinction between fact and fiction and truth and lies, which is the essential element of what has made Vince so successful, is that that balancing, blending, and exploding of those factors. And Trumpism is very, very similar to Vince's brand of wrestling, which really tries to confuse you to the point of submission, basically. Josie, for the women, not just Janelle Grant, but the multiple women who've made allegations against Vince McMahon, who've allegedly received hush money payments from Vince McMahon, there has to be the feeling that this moment where it seems like at least some of the culture is finally paying attention to them and taking them seriously just must feel like a very, very long time coming, too long coming, to be honest. I would imagine I, a couple of years ago, profiled Rita Chatterton, the first female referee in the WWF who said Vince McMahon raped her in 1986. And she said that at the time she had been willing to talk to me because she had been really inspired by uh, the women who had already come forward in talking about the hush money payments and those allegations. So if I were to hazard a guess that this was something that was that Rita and other women who have come forward with allegations against McMahon are very grateful for, because it does seem to have turned the tide in a way that their individual brave, very brave stories have not turned the tide historically. You know, Vince is kind of Teflon. And because he's built this persona that in the ring very often based itself around depictions of sexual harassment, sexual assault, that sort of thing, it's kind of water off of a duck's back. People go, well, I expected that of him, so I guess what are you going to do? But Janelle Grant deserves special praise. If you're in the camp that believes these allegations, she deserves special praise for finding words that were able to really change the conversation about Vince and about hopefully wrestling in general. I hope this is not something where people think Vince is the only person who's ever been accused of things like this in wrestling. It's really a wide and long culture of, of sexual misconduct in that industry. Abraham Josephine Reisman is the author of Ringmaster, Vince McMahon, and the Unmaking of America. We'll link to her slate pieces on our show page. Josie, thanks so much. Oh, thank you for having me. And now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. Did you hear about the Bennett's Prune Juice IPO? Are they saying like 30, 40 billion? 40 billion, I think. In Prune Juice sort of wildly inefficient? I'm surprised that it, uh, it's doing that well. And I know that Inefficient it's or ineffective? Well. It's effective. It's effective, but inefficient. Inefficient, you... like a mid-range jumper? Yeah. Like, I mean, there's plenty of ways to get done what you're trying to get done instead of drinking prune juice now. Inefficient, like the, kinds of men, like the kind of mid-range jumpers that Kenny Sailors used to knock down? Back to you, Stefan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if Kenny Sailors would have uh, done well in the NBA Slam Dunk Contest, but you know who did was one of the judges, Darnell Hillman. He played in the NBA for nine seasons in the 70s, mostly for the Indiana Pacers. 
Hillman actually won the slam dunk contest in the 76-77 season. And in those days, it wasn't during an all-star weekend. It was held during the course of the regular season. Hillman took out like Dr. J and George Gervin. And the finals occurred at halftime of game five of the NBA finals. Hillman outdunked Larry McNeil of the Warriors. But Hillman wasn't on a team because... After the season, his rights had been traded from the Pacers to the Nets, so he competed in the slam dunk finals wearing a white t-shirt that said Bottle Shop, S-H-O-P-P-E on it, which was an Indianapolis liquor store, which apparently still exists, and was the sponsor of his rec softball team on which he played left field. Donnell Hillman had, as I said, a great NBA career. He averaged about 10 points per game. He had a gigantic Afro. He was actually voted the biggest ABA Afro award at an ABA reunion in 1997. (laughs) He could jump so high. I'm reading from the Wikipedia page for Donnell Hillman now. He was once asked by a reporter if it was true that he could jump high enough to grab a quarter off the top of the backboard. Hillman said, put a $100 bill up there and see. <laughs> so you may recall that on Saturday night during the NBA slam dunk contest, Kenny Smith of TNT, former NBA player who should have known better, called Darnell Hillman, Darnell Tillman. Just one of mm. the many slips of the tongue that Kenny Smith produced during the NBA weekend all-star coverage. So we are here to right that wrong and praise Darnell Hillman who scored 6,666 points in the NBA and the ABA combined. Um, Great player. I remember him from when I was a kid. You do? Yeah, totally. Really? He played in the late 70s, man. Remember Darnell Hillman? I had a red, white, and blue ABA basketball that I used to the point that the bladder popped out, and I had to get rid of it. Josh, what's your Dr. Dunk? With the NFL offseason now upon us, we're probably safe from Brock Purdy discourse for at least the next few months. But before we put the debate over this 49ers quarterback's relative goodness totally in the rear view, I wanted to look back at a controversy over a previous San Francisco QB. The year is 1996. There are Darnells aplenty. Two uh, two seasons after Steve Young led the 49ers to a romp over the Chargers in Super Bowl XXIX, the Niners still had a strong team, but in week 11 at home against the uh, Troy Aikman, Emmitt Smith, and Michael Irvin, Dallas Cowboys, everything went sideways. NFL Primetime's Chris Berman, take it away. But then Steve Young, Broderick Thomas blasts him, and then Jim Schwantz knocks him out. That's Doc Clint on the sidelines, but Young would have to leave with a slight concussion again, would not return. That slight concussion was Young's second in three games. He'd actually mm. retire after the 1999 season due to all the head injuries he suffered in his career. This time, he would be replaced by Elvis Gerbeck from Michigan. And with 6.30 to go in the fourth quarter, the backup QB <laughs> made a big mistake. Gerbeck. Didn't even let his defense rest. Big pressure by Dallas. Gerbeck, the floater into the hands of Frank Strickland. What are you doing? I feel like this show would be like four to eight times more enjoy- enjoyable for Joel if we just had that music going in the background oh, the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> the NFL primetime music. It sends me back to you, Joel. Yes, I'm just going to bop into it. <laughs> Don't mind me. <laughs> um, okay, back to Elvis Gerback. That was a very ill-timed interception. The Cowboys scored a tying touchdown immediately. This is late in the fourth quarter. Then they went on to win the game in overtime. 49ers fans were very upset. Among them, the mayor of San Francisco, Willie Brown. Willie Brown was actually in Paris at the time to sign some kind of friendship agreement between the cities. Uh, When asked by a journalist, jokingly, if France would help pay for a new 49ers stadium, Brown replied, I'm trying to get the French to invest in a new quarterback because Elvis Gerback is an embarrassment to humankind. Wow. Willie, he brought it. Oh, we're stating it a little bit here, man. Harsh. What Brown didn't realize is that Gerbach was going through some personal turmoil. His nine-month-old son had just had surgery for spina bifida. A few hours later, after Brown learned that, he said, I don't know whether he, Gerbach, will accept my apology, 
or whether or not he will forgive me. I just hope to hell he will, but I will say a prayer for his son. Gerbach said he did accept the apology, adding, the mayor better hope that he's rooting for me the next 10 years and not against me, because I plan on being a successful player in this league for many years to come. Elvis would play for five more seasons with the Niners, the Chiefs, and the Ravens. What he's probably most famous for now is a story that goes viral about like every three months, which is that he was named People Magazine's sexiest athlete in 1998 when the photographer accidentally took his photo instead of that of his Chiefs teammate, Rich Gannon. True story. More importantly, (laughs) his son, Jack, did recover from that surgery for spina bifida. As of a few years ago, he was actually a guitarist for a band called the Dead Licks. And one of those San Francisco 49ers, Joel and Stefan, well, they have not won a Super Bowl since Willie Brown called their backup quarterback an embarrassment to humankind. Brown, who is about to turn 90, has been working as a paid advisor for a self-driving car company out in the Bay, Joel. The former mayor, known as His Dapperness, also recently had his annual clothing sale for charity. At the time we're recording this, you could still bid on his Peter Elliott yellow wool overcoat, the perfect attire for insulting Elvis Gerback and then apologizing for it. Well, I mean, he's no, I mean, it's not like Elvis Gerback was Scott Driesback, you know? I mean, he's certainly one of the better Michigan quarterbacks ever. (laughs) So you gotta, you gotta pay some respect Willie, that's uh, that's unfortunate. But you know, man, Willie's a, Willie's a firebrand. You know what I mean? Like he's a he's a guy that was prone to overstatement. I think uh, so. I'm, I'm not surprised. And he, that was a very nice apology, right? Like, don't you? Like, he he seemed earnest. And he explained that he was just like, you know, an overzealous sports fan. He chalked he chalked it up to that. But the stories about, I mean, there were a ton of stories. Like this was in the New York Times. This was in Sports Illustrated. This story just went everywhere. And in the local stories, at least, it was like, this is only the latest example of Willie Brown saying something that, and it's, it's just, this was like a kind of thing that, that he did. He, he was an excitable gentleman. And dapper as well, too. (laughs) The Willie Brown suit is very. If any of Joel's cousins, you know, if they, you know, he got the Earl Campbell jersey, if they want to get him a Willie Brown jacket as well. I have a cousin in Vallejo who may know Willie Brown, so maybe he could uh, hook me up. So we'll see. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not really into the market for suits. I don't put on that many clothes anymore. But we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. What, we'll see what Joel is wearing uh, next week. And that is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just reach out. Go to slate.com/hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.